Hello friends, and thank you for tuning in to this week's sermon from Spring Hill Baptist Church in Millport, Alabama. We're currently working through the Gospel of John in our sermon series entitled, That You May Have Life. Our prayer is that this time in God's Word would be edifying for you. God bless. If you have a Bible today, go ahead and open it to the book of John. <clears throat> John chapter 19. John chapter 19. We're going to be finishing chapter 19 today. Uh, if you're not regular with Spring Hill, you'll know uh, that, or you wouldn't know that we've been walking through the book of John for uh, a little over a year now. Um, we're now in John 19. We started at 1-1, and we find ourselves finishing chapter 19, which means we only have two chapters left in John, uh, and so we're really nearing the end. It's crazy how things sort of really slow down to a creeping pace as we've uh, been in Passion Weekend, the, the time that Jesus has been crucified for quite some time. I started the service by talking about Advent, uh, and I'm going to I'm going to start my sermon talking the same way about Advent. And uh, I was talking with some of you guys a little bit earlier today, and I, I wasn't aware. You know, I, I didn't I didn't grow up in Millport. Uh, I didn't grow up in this area, and so um, and, and obviously you didn't know me when I was a kid. I grew up in the Birmingham area, and um, we grow up differently. You know, one of the things it's it's hard to realize that a lot of the things that we uh, know. I knew things when I was a kid and we did things that were normal, that were my tradition, and you did things that were your tradition, and we're, we totally have missed each other in so many ways because I lived 30 years of life before you even knew me, right? And so there's a lot of things that happen that you don't know about. Um, some of you guys are the same way. You know, I came to Spring Hill three years ago, and uh, some of the songs that you sing, I'd never even heard before. I know that they're in the hymn book. One of them that comes to mind is Lily of the Valley. You're like, what? You never heard that song? Because that's just part of your uh, repertoire, right? And we sing that song often, and it's a wonderful song. I had never even heard that. And so there's just things that you have done in your tradition for a long, long time uh, that you would think that, man, this guy was raised in the Baptist church. Surely he's done that too. But I never did. You see, every church that I'd never been a part of did this right here. We did Advent. Uh, in fact, my family always did Advent. And uh, somebody mentioned earlier, was like, I thought that that was like a, a Catholic thing or something like that. Uh, Catholics do it. Lutherans, uh, Episcopalians, Methodists, Baptists, Presbyterians. Many denominations do this. And the reason that they do this is because Advent literally means uh, coming. It means arrival. And the arrival, not just of anything, but it's the arrival of something that has been long awaited for. Uh, you may be having an Advent or, or, or recognizing an Advent of, of like a new piece of technology, like a television that you've been wanting, or an iPhone. You may be anticipating the advent of a movie that you've been looking forward to. I know I am because Star Wars comes out in like two weeks. I'm really amped about that. And you don't care. That's okay. We teach their own. Uh, you may be looking for the advent of warmer weather as it gets colder, or the advent of harvest as your you know your, your crops are dying out, or maybe even uh, you're just, hey, the advent of Christmas. I'm, I'm a Christmas person, and I'm really excited for the next three weeks. Uh, whatever it is, advent doesn't always have to do with Christmas, but that word is often associated with Christmas because it is talking about the advent, the arrival of a long-awaited Savior. Christmas, but also an advent of a Savior that is yet to come. You see, we have an advent that we look back and remember that Jesus has already come. He is the light of the world. He has been born into a dark world, and he brought the gospel. But we also await, still, that the Savior is once again coming, a future-awaited advent. The earliest recorded Advent celebration was in 480. That was a long time ago. It was over 1,500 years ago. But there's really no telling when the earliest time uh, really was. Uh, in 480, whenever they did that, there were monks that fasted and celebrated for the entire month of Christ's coming. For several weeks, they would worship and they would anticipate that day, the day of Christmas. Advent, at its very core, is worshipful. 
It's not just ceremonial, it's worshipful. And these cam- candles in front of me are symbols of our, of our Savior come and our Savior coming. And so considering Advent and how this means a lot to me, in fact, James and I talked about it, Brother James, we, we talked about this, we wanted to incorporate it somehow, and then we thought, we're like, how can we do this? Should we do a separate series? Last year, if you were at Spring Hill, we did a an Advent mini-series these four weeks. But this time I was thinking, you know, I, I considered preaching from elsewhere in light of this season, this month, but where we find ourselves in John, to be honest with you, I can think of no better place for us to celebrate Advent than on the weekend of the moment that the infant arrival of Jesus anticipated. And that's the weekend for the reason that he came, the weekend that sin was paid for and that the grave was conquered. That's what Advent's about. It's the birth of Jesus for this purpose. And so what we're going to see in John 19 today is a situation with two very sinful men who displayed bold faith because the cross impacted their souls. And that's going to be our aim as well. That the cross has so impacted our souls that we are people of bold faith. So let's check it out. John 19, verses 38 through 42. This is what the Word of God says. After these things, Joseph of Arimathea who was a disciple of Jesus, but secretly, for fear of the Jews, asked Pilate that he might take away the body of Jesus. And Pilate gave him permission. So he came and took away his body. Nicodemus also, who earlier had come to Jesus by night, came bringing a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about 75 pounds in weight. So they took the body of Jesus and bound it in linen cloths with the spices, as is the burial custom of the Jews. Now in the place where he was crucified, there was a garden, and in the garden, a new tomb, in which no one had yet been laid. So because of the Jewish day of preparation, since the tomb was close at hand, they laid Jesus there. So just to recap, we're going to walk through this passage here in just a moment, but just to recap, the very first few words of this passage in verse 38 said, after these things. So just really quickly talking about what led up to this moment. Jesus has been crucified, which is why they're talking about his body. He is deceased. Jesus has been crucified. The innocent man suffered for the guilty people. That's the story of the crucifixion. Last week we saw that scripture is fulfilled in his corpse. Even though Jesus is not even alive at the moment, his corpse is still fulfilling scripture, which means he He is sovereignly fulfilling scripture. His Passover lamb bones were not broken. His savior pierced side was pierced. And we saw blood and water come from it. A blood of atonement, a water of repentance. And we see more things that are going on here when Jesus has no life in his body. You see, other gospel authors talk about the impact of the death of Jesus on individuals. Luke talks about the criminal beside him. This man is innocent. Jesus, remember me when you enter your kingdom, when you go into paradise. Remember me in Luke 23. So we see that God in Christ has impacted a godless outcast of a criminal. We see in Matthew, Mark, and in Luke, a Roman guard that's looking on that says those famous words, truly, this man was the son of God. Not only was an outcast, a criminal impacted by the cross of Christ, but a Gentile Roman guard was impacted by the death of Jesus. And now we see not only a godless outcast, not only a Gentile Roman guard, but now we see in the lives of two members of the Jewish religious elite that the gospel transforms no one or two groups of people, but any and everyone 
who humbly comes to saving faith in Christ crucified, two religious men, elites, are going to be impacted by the cross of Christ. So as we examine these two men's roles in Jesus' burial, I think that we can find two life-changing principles. And so here's going to be our, our structure today. That walking with Jesus means, number one, burying secret faith. You notice I put secret faith in quotes there. I'm going to talk about that. Secret faith. Walking with Jesus, number one, means burying secret faith. Jesus' body had been left hanging. The legs of the man beside him, men beside him had been broken, but he was already dead. And so instead of breaking his legs, they pierced his side. We looked at that last week if you were here. In short, we've already read this, but in very, very short, and we're going to talk about it more in detail. In very short, what happens next is that these two guys bury Jesus' body. They put this, what my mom would have called when I was a kid, smell goods, okay? They put these fragrant spices uh, in the tomb to hide the stench of dried blood and rotting flesh. But as is so often the case with John's gospel, the value of this passage is in the details. So let's examine these two guys, what they do, and how we can learn from this moment. Verse 38. After these things, Joseph, Joseph of Arimathea, who was a disciple of Jesus, but secretly for fear of the Jews, asked Pilate that he might take away the body of Jesus. And Pilate gave him permission, so... He came and took away his body. Okay, so John provides some important details about Joseph, but so do the other gospel authors. This is not the husband of Mary. Some of you guys may have been wondering that. It's not the husband of Mary. Joseph of Arimathea wasn't the husband of Mary who was Jesus' mom. Uh, This is another guy, okay? Matthew and Luke say that he is a wealthy man. He's a member of the Jewish ruling council. Uh, That's the Sanhedrin. And if you know... If you've been here the last few weeks, you know some things about the Sanhedrin. The Sanhedrin weren't just some governing officials. They were that. But they had played a very pivotal role in the crucifixion of Jesus. Guys, these are the guys that were responsible for sending Jesus to Pilate for crucifixion. I want you to understand what just happened here. Joseph of Arimathea is part of the the party of people that crucified Jesus. And yet what John tells us about this guy is that he's a disciple of Jesus. Do you hear that? A disciple of Jesus was instrumental in putting him on the cross. It's supposed to sound strange. It's supposed to sound a little bit outrageous. This guy's a disciple, yet secretly for fear of the Jews, and it totally makes sense as to why, because of what we just saw happen to Jesus. It's no surprise that he would be a secret disciple. He wouldn't want to be associated with Jesus, this guy that the Sanhedrin, his boys, just crucified. Now, under Roman law, the bodies of executed criminals were handed over to the next of kin, but not in the case of enemies of the state. Okay, Jesus wasn't just labeled as some common criminal. He was an enemy of the state. He was an insurrectionist. He was a rebel against Caesar. They were left for the vultures. Those types of people, insurrectionists, they were left for the vultures, or in this case, probably dumped in a mass grave heap of criminals. The reason I say that is because Jesus' body was going to be given the most shameful of possible ends. A shameful end, which in that culture meant a whole lot. A shameful, shameful end. Joseph of Arimathea probably used his rank as a member of the Sanhedrin to gain access to Pilate's ear and thus gain access to the body of this perceived blaspheming criminal. But Joseph wasn't the only one. Look at verse 39. It's another guy, Nicodemus, also 
who earlier had come to Jesus by night, came bringing a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about 75 pounds in weight. Now, you'll, you'll notice probably a footnote where it says 75 pounds. Their uh, metric system, not metric system, but their system of, of measurement for weight is a little bit different than ours. So where it says 75 pounds, it's really a, a little bit over 65 pounds in weight. It doesn't really matter just to say that's a whole lot of spices and smell goods, like I said, as my mother would say. John contrasts two events for us here in Nicodemus' life. He refers to this time, but he also refers to a time that, G, that he came to Jesus by night, quoting what he says in verse 39, a time that Nicodemus, who had earlier come to Jesus by night. Now, we've already talked about that, okay, in John chapter 3, and you probably know it a little bit better than you realize. Uh, it ends, that conversation ends with the monologue by Jesus that begins with, for God so loved the world. You may know a little bit about that, right? For God so loved the world. It's John 3.16. This is the conversation with Nicodemus. That conversation began when Nicodemus, who, by the way, also was a member of the Sanhedrin, also a Pharisee, he approached Jesus by night. The reason for that little detail is to say he did it in secret. He did it in secret. Does that sound familiar? Just like the secret disciple of Joseph of Arimathea. He approached Jesus in secret, in the dark, so as not to be seen by other people. We saw in chapter 3, when Nicodemus approaches Jesus, that he's very sincere in his questioning. He calls Jesus rabbi, which simply means teacher. He says that you're from God, because no one can do the things that you do unless you're from God. He acknowledges that he's a rabbi, a teacher, that he's even from God, and he asks Jesus, what must I do, or how must one see the kingdom of God? Jesus' response is very strange. He says, one must be reborn, born again, the way that we have said that phrase. You must be reborn to be saved from sin. Jesus then, in John chapter 3, points to Numbers chapter 21, which is a moment in the history of God's people of Israel when when Moses is given uh, the opportunity to bring God's people to repentance, and yet they don't. And so God sends a legion of serpents, venomous snakes, and they bite many of God's people, and many of God's people begin to die. And then God says to Moses, hey, take a bronze serpent statue. You go up on a hill, on a mountain. You lift that thing up. And anyone that looks at what you have lifted up, they will be cured from the venom that is killing them. And the reason that Jesus points to that narrative in Numbers 21 is to say, the way that Moses lifted up that serpent in the wilderness to be healed from the venom within, so must the Son of Man be lifted up. So that whoever looks at Him will also be given eternal life. And then you see verse 16, for God so loved the world, right? Jesus is saying in this passage in John chapter 3, the same way that God's people looked to the serpent that was lifted up on the mountain, you're going to look to the crucified Jesus when I am the one that is lifted up. Now listen, y'all, don't you know that Jesus says, well, you remember how Moses lifted up that thing on that hill and everybody looked at that, that thing? Don't you know that Nicodemus, a member of the Sanhedrin that was there at the crucifixion, sees when Jesus is lifted up on that mountain and says, there it is. I can see no other way. I can see no other way. It seems to be certainly what has already transpired. And so Nicodemus, while confused in chapter 3, there's no indication that it clicked in that moment. He goes away confused, but now his story changes. And perhaps Calvary made that earlier encounter click. And so what we see Nicodemus do, which may not seem like a big deal, I'm going to explain to you why it is. What we see him do is bring a lot of weight of expensive powdered uh, ointment, 65 or so pounds in our tongue, 
of powdered myrrh. They'd mix it with aloes and they used it to honor the body of the dead. Pleasant fragrances. The reason for this was to mask a disgusting and rotting corpse odor. Now why is that a moment of faith in the life of Nicodemus? All signs point to this being a moment of faith. He's associated with another man who is doing an act of faith. Why? Because this act was not just a common courtesy for the dead. Nicodemus was making a bold stance. He was making a bold stance, and we see this in verse 40. So they took the body of Jesus and bound it in linen cloths with spices, as is the burial custom of the Jews. That last part is very important. As is the burial custom of the Jews. You see, listen, Jesus had become someone that you do not associate with, culturally speaking. He was an enemy of Rome, for one thing, and they didn't want to get in hot water with the Roman officials. An insurrectionist, a a, a person guilty of sedition. He was an enemy of the state. He'd been an outcast of the Jews. They had labeled him a blasphemer of God. He was a blasphemer. He was cursed, shamed in his death. Cursed is the man who hangs on a tree. That's Jesus. So he's an enemy of the state. He's a blasphemer. And now he's a cursed man. People who died in this way did not receive burials of honor. They were left for the vultures. Or as the Jews would do in this situation, they'd say, he's ashamed. He's cursed. Let him rot in a common grave. You see, shame culture is, is something that's hard for us to wrap our minds around. And um, I, we know people, some of you guys know people, we sponsor some people that, that live in the Middle East on mission, and they came and talked to us some about shame culture. Shame culture is hard for us to wrap our minds around. But let me just try, okay? Think about today in our culture. Now, I'm not saying Jesus was these things, but think about being perceived as these things. It would be like someone in our culture that's been given a lethal injection after living a life as a serial killer and a pedophile, and then someone goes to their funeral that's been given, a very nice and beautiful funeral, by the way, and speaks very highly of them at their expensive and life-honoring funeral and, and really esteems them like they were some great individual who deserves honor and respect, you would look at that situation and say, what's wrong with that person? Why would they associate with such a vile, disgusting individual? This is what Joseph and Nicodemus are doing. They're associating themselves with a man perceived as being someone you do not associate with. Now, obviously, Jesus was not truly a guilty man, but at this point, it didn't matter. He died a cursed death. He was shamed by the culture. But instead of a cursed, rotting corpse in a common grave, these two who, by the way, for all intents and purposes, knew better. (laughs) They were masters of the law. They knew their Bibles. They knew better than this. And yet they buried Jesus as a wealthy man of honor, as is the burial custom of the Jews. You see, for Joseph and Nicodemus, to take on the preparation and the burial of this man. By the way, in the daylight, it's not yet the Sabbath, okay? It's still light outside. For them to do this in the daylight, in front of crucifixion witnesses, this would doubtless mean that they would themselves be treated as outcasts by their peers, by the Sanhedrin, and by anybody else. They themselves were taking on the same shame that Jesus was taking on himself. For two members of the governing body whose job it was to know and live by the law, They knew what Jesus had become. They knew the cost of aligning themselves with Him in this activity. And so we see Joseph, a secret disciple who lacked daily faith, 
Because it would mean he would have to make his uh, make sacrifices in his status, in his relationships. We see Nicodemus, an unbeliever, and yet maybe something has shifted here. A man that's afraid to take the leap of faith due to the way it would alter his status, his relationships, his conversations. These are the two men who were Im- imprisoned by the fear of man. And yet, they seemingly take giant leaps of faith in aligning themselves to Jesus in the light of day. So bringing this thing full circle, my point is that secret faith is just as self-destructive then as it is today. Secret faith is just as destructive then as it is today. It made Joseph's walk stagnant and something he was ashamed of. It made Nicodemus' salvation impossible until it was destroyed. The principle here, I think, is clear. And that's that convenient secret faith simply will not do for followers of Jesus. Convenient secret faith just will not do for followers of Jesus. You see, if I were to go around to each person in this room and say, um, do you want to be nearer to Jesus? And ask that question in sincerity. Do you want to be nearer to Jesus? I think that 99.9, almost everybody, probably everybody even, I would think, would say, yes, I do. I want to be nearer to Jesus. So learn from the men who walked before you, okay? The path of faithfulness is paved by humility. The path of faithfulness is paved by humility. Stop caring so much about what others or even what yourself thinks Think or live for an audience of one. Guys, listen, fear of man and selfish living, they got to go. There's no place for fear of man and selfish living in a life of a disciple of Jesus. Walking with Jesus will mean that you aren't the trendy dresser. Walking with Jesus will mean that you aren't the popular kid. Walking with Jesus will mean that you honor God's design for sex and not let it be defined by your culture. It will mean that you don't have a gossiping tongue. Walking with Jesus will mean that money is not the main reason why you work. Walking with Jesus will mean that you give up comfortability in favor of an uncomfortable yet necessary conversation, whether it be a lost person or with your spouse or with your children. I said this last week, but what is easy is not always, uh, what's best is not always what's easiest. Walking with Jesus will mean that your Sundays belong to God, not to sleep and football. It will mean that you seek reconciliation with that person who wronged you because you love Jesus way more than you love your ego. Convenient faith simply won't do. It wasn't good enough in the life of Joseph and Nicodemus, and it won't do now. You want to be nearer to Jesus? The path of faithfulness is paved by humility. Get out of your own way. And if you hear these things and you brush them to the side, then listen, just be real and admit that you really don't want to be nearer to Jesus. Just be real. Just be honest. You brush those things aside, just be real and say that when it really hits the road, you don't want to be nearer to Jesus. You've settled for convenient secret faith. It is a fool who proclaims his thirst but never desires to drink. Number two, 
Walking with Jesus means, secondly, my old life was buried with Him, so I must live my new life in Him. My old life was buried with Him, so I must live my new life in Him. It's hard when we're confronted by sin. Secret faith is, is in us. It's in all of us in some ways. Convenient secret faith is in us. But man, this next part is so comforting. That might beat us up, but this is so comforting. Old life was buried with him, so I must live my new life in him. You see, we identify with the flawed men in verses 38 through 40, but we rest alongside them in the Savior that they're about to bury who will not stay in the tomb. <laughs> we, man, we rest with these guys. The guy that they're about to put in this grave, he's not going to be there long. And don't you know they're putting a lot of effort into it, and he just walks out of there? They're <laughs> putting a lot of effort into this thing. You see, we cannot lose sight of the big picture of this moment that Jesus has proclaimed it is finished. Look at verses 41 and 42. Now in the place where he was crucified, there was a garden. And in the garden, a new tomb in which no one had yet been laid. So because of the Jewish day of preparation... That's the day before the Sabbath. Since the tomb was close at hand, they laid Jesus there. In short, what this means is that this, this grave, by the way, it might have even belonged to Joseph of Arimathea. Many believe that it did. Uh, it's, a, it's a grave of convenience. It's very close. Remember, this is the day before the Sabbath, and Jesus died late in the afternoon. And so it took them probably a while to get him off the cross. And so you could not uh, work on the Sabbath, obviously, which means you couldn't carry the body. You couldn't even prepare the spices on the Sabbath. And these guys had to abide by that. And so they found this garden tomb that was right beside Golgotha, right beside Calvary. Uh, we're talking about right next to it, adjacent to it, okay? Here's Calvary, here's this garden tomb. And so they say, hey, this is the, the grave that we're going to bury him in because we don't have time to wait to anticipate these things longer than just a few minutes. Tombs like this one were cut out of stone structures, like maybe a small mountain. Some of you guys have been to the Holy Land, and, and you've seen places like this. It really, it's on the side of a mountainous structure, and they just kind of uh, excavate and, and dig out um, a part of that rock and, and put bodies in there and then roll the, uh, the rock in front of the, the, the tomb opening. And so uh, cut out of a small mountain is where this was. And heck, maybe even cut out of the side of Golgotha. We're really not sure. But this is cut out of the side of a mountain. The word for garden here in verse 41 you see, it says, and in the, new, uh, in the garden there was a new tomb. The word for garden there, it literally suggests something very substantial, an orchard or a plantation. This wasn't your little garden that you have next to your house that has your, your green beans and your corn in it, okay? This is a really big plantation, an orchard, a very beautiful structure. There's more going on here, I think, that meets the eye. First of all, I want to note that it says that, that this is a place where no one had yet been laid. Um, Isaiah chapter 9, I think, foretells this moment. says that Jesus will die like a wicked man, but be buried like a rich man. Uh, it's from Isaiah chapter 9. So we see once again fulfillment going on. But I'm going to suggest that there is more going on here than just what that John wants us to know geographically where Jesus was temporarily buried. It makes me wonder if the two men, these two guys that certainly knew their book of Genesis, I wonder if they who knew their book of Genesis saw the irony of burying Jesus in a garden, another beautiful orchard plantation where a horrible death took place. You see, in the garden called Eden, 
Our first ancestors were told that they and we were surely dead in sin. It's the first garden. Our ancestors were told that they were surely dead in sin. Now we see in the garden tomb, we are told that Jesus became sin so that we may have life. Don't you see this? In the garden, God pronounced a curse of death as the wages of sin. But He also promised in that same garden a suffering servant who would be bruised for your transgressions, crushed for your iniquities, but that by His death, by His burial, you, or He would rather, purchase peace with God and crush the enemy. The curse began in a garden and the curse was buried in a garden. Come on now. That's something, isn't it? That's something. When Jesus was put in that tomb, the reason we're able to come together today and sing songs like joy to the world is because your old life was buried in there with Him. And that's the gospel, isn't it, folks? That Jesus wasn't just some sweet little baby boy all handsome crying in the world in a little manger. He was a suffering servant to be. A death sentence that was pronounced in a garden was buried with the God-man in a garden tomb so that you may have life. So that that death may be your death. So that His life may be your life. Christian, if you have placed saving faith in Jesus, you have already been buried with Him. And so, the encouragement today, my old life was buried with Him, so I must live my new life in Him. You've already been buried with Him. So now, today, live your new life in Him. It's a great verse that talks about that. And many of you know it's Galatians 2.20. I have been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave Himself for me. You've been been buried with Him. In fact, when we baptize people behind me, I say that, right? Buried with Christ in baptism. Raised to walk in what? Newness of life. Newness of life. Church, there is simply no room for secret faith at the foot of the cross. We sang this just a moment ago. Jesus paid it all. All to Him I owe. We said that sin left a crimson stain. No, guys, sin left a permanent stain. Sin left a permanent stain. But Jesus brought divine detergent. It's the blood of the Lamb who makes the foulest clean. You want to be nearer to Jesus? The path of faithfulness is paved by humility. So many of us have become so good at living a faith that is Sunday only, that is risk-free, and that is privatized. Church, I want you to know that is the life of Joseph Arimathea. It's weak. It's risk-free. It's safe. It's convenient. And it will not do. And it will not honor God. Crucify. Bury. Secret faith. Forget wordplay and lip service. I know you know all the right answers. I know you know how to talk it up. Talk it up. Stop living like the former Joseph of Arimathea. Ashamed of the Jesus who died for you. 
and instead admit humbly where your faith has been secret and shameful. You know, when I read narrative in Scripture, I really try to get underneath the pages. Don't you know that the walk from Golgotha to that tomb for two men that were cowards, Joseph especially, He'd been a disciple for seems like a while. Nicodemus may have been a new convert that, that afternoon. Who knows? But don't you know that Joseph, maybe even unsure about the resurrection, don't you know that Joseph felt so to blame? Member of the Sanhedrin, a voice in the ruling council, complicit. And I like to think that that walk from Golgotha to that tomb had to have been one of the most discouraging, empty, sad moments of that man's life. Church, what I want you to understand is that when you live a life of wordplay and lip service, of convenient, cowardly faith, guys, it dishonors Jesus. And it makes you complicit. So the instruction is very simple. Make war on secret faith. But the blessing is sure. And that is that we're reading about Joseph, who though he was a coward in the death of Jesus, he stepped out on a platform and said, I'm going to honor him in his death, even if I didn't live for him in his life. And Jesus did not stay in the tomb. And we read of this man's life and we bestow blessings on him. And don't you know that Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus heard, well done. Church, you are a great sinner. Jesus is a better Savior. You are a wretch. Jesus is King. And so as we celebrate the Advent season of Christmas, I want you to understand that as awful as you feel day in and day out, just like this guy right here, just like me, as downtrodden as you feel, Jesus paid it all. He paid it all. He washed you white as snow so that we can get together and not look at the coming, the second coming, the advent of coming of Jesus, not in terror, but in great joy. Admit humbly where your faith has been secret and shameful and walk confidently in newness of life. And if you today have never placed your faith and trust in Jesus and you hear Nicodemus' story, And you're thinking, man, that's me. That's me. I know what the Bible says. Nicodemus knew his Bible. He was a good church-going guy. He was always in the synagogues and he knew his stuff. But the man was godless. He was godless. And he did not get it. Hear me say this today. You want to follow Christ for the first time? The path of faithfulness is paved by humility. Take the first step of humility today. It may mean walking this aisle and having an uncomfortable conversation with the pastor. It may mean sticking around afterwards and making a few confessions and saying, I need to make my life right with Jesus. Don't delay. Don't delay. Make it today. And let us all rest in Advent that Christ has come, He is risen, and He is coming again. Let's pray. We want to thank you for listening to this week's sermon. For more information, you can find us on Facebook by going to facebook.com slash the Spring Hill Baptist. 
We'd love for you to join us on Sunday mornings at 10 a.m. as we seek to make much of Jesus in loving above all else.